0: To take your hands off the wheel and your eyes off the road. 26 April, 1937. A fateful day for the Spanish Republicans, the Spanish Nationalists, the Germans, and the whole world really, even up to today. The German Condor Legion was the away team of the Luftwaffe. Hitler didn't want to be seen getting involved in a war in Europe. It was led by Hugo Spurl and his chief of staff Wolfram von Richthofen. Von Richthofen was the highly controversial cousin of the most famous World War I flying ace, Baron Manfred von Richthofen, the Red Baron. On 26 April 1937, von Richthofen was in command of launching the controversial bombing attack on the Spanish town of Guernica in the Basque region in the north of Spain. At that time, the Basque region was controlled by the elected socialist communist republican government. The nationalist rebels commanded by General Francisco Franco were in the process of prosecuting a campaign against the Republican forces to conquer that area. The Nationalists were supported by the Nazi government of Adolf Hitler, and very substantially, only in terms of numbers, by the military personnel of the fascist government of Benito Mussolini. Their performance was mostly abysmal, which was something that wouldn't change in the coming World War. The air raid on Guernica was reported on by the journalist on the spot. Well, he arrived there the next day after the attack, George Steer, His article was published in both the Times of London and the New York Times. Steer's newspaper report read, in part, the object of the bombardment seemingly was demoralisation of the civil population and destruction of the cradle of the Basque race. And that is, George Steer was calling this air raid a terror raid against a civilian population. Pablo Picasso, the world famous expat Spanish painter, was living in Paris at the time of that raid. He was immediately commissioned by the Republican government to produce a painting about the bombing of Guernica. Picasso completed his painting just a few months after the attack in June 1937. Picasso never returned to Spain to live. Picasso's finished painting was displayed at the International Exhibition of Arts in Paris in 1937. It's the world's most famous painting of war painted in black, blue, and white, measuring 3.5 metres high by 7.8 metres wide, it's a powerful and physically imposing condemnation of the German terror raid on Guernica. The only problem with that description is that, well, maybe it wasn't a terror raid. If it wasn't, the left who were behind promoting it as that ...rendered an enormous service to Adolf Hitler... ...which I would say guaranteed the Second World War in Europe. This series of programs will reveal all. Antony Bivor is one of the most prolific military historians working today. His books have covered most of the main wars and battles in Europe... ...from the Russian Revolution through to the fall of Berlin and even beyond... With such vast coverage, it's unreasonable to expect that there would never be slip-ups in his research, and I believe that his coverage of the bombing of Guernica in his 1982 book, which was later renamed The Battle for Spain, appears to be an important example of a slip-up. How hard is it to get to the truth? With much of our media today even denying, or at least behaving as though there is Is no such a thing. The bombing of Guernica and what the world made of it seems to have been very heavily influenced by the propaganda surrounding it at the time. Antony Beevor, I believe, failed to distance himself from that. He tells his readers of the significance of the terror raid on Guernica. He says, Not until the bombing of Guernica in April of 1937 did the battle for world opinion really change in the republic's favour. But by then the republicans were already losing the war. The key player who gave orders for the bombing attack on Guernica to take place was General Wolfram von Richthofen. He'd been in charge of the department in the Luftwaffe, responsible for developing new aircraft. He served under the inspired leadership of General Wilhelm Wimmer. When the Nazis came to power and Hermann Göring was made the head of the Luftwaffe, he replaced Wimmer with his old World War I crony, Hans Udet, a man who was, for the most part, outstandingly and dangerously incompetent. Richtofen didn't suffer fools lightly, so when this happened, he requested to be transferred to the Condor Legion that was in the process of forming. That would get him away from UDET. The chief officer in charge of the German air forces in Spain was General Helmut Wilberg. He was clearly a man with exceptional gifts. He'd been a senior air commander in World War I, commanding 700 aircraft on the Flanders front in 1917. Chief of the Shadow Luftwaffe from 1920 to 1927. He was the main author of the Luftwaffe's operational doctrine. He would have been the perfect choice to be the head of the Luftwaffe, but he did have one fatal flaw the elephant in his room was the fact that his mother was a Jewess. Since Jewishness derives from the mother, that meant that technically Wilberg was a Jew, although under the laws of Nazi Germany he was classified as being a half Jew, since his father was a Gentile. Being a Jew in Nazi Germany would definitely be seen as a bump in the road of your career, but Wilberg was a extraordinarily good at his job, to the universal acclaim of everyone that knew him. So good was he that Hitler personally issued a decree of Aryanization that declared Wilberg and his family, henceforth under the laws of the Third Reich, to be considered fully Aryan and German. How this precisely worked out for the Jewish side of his family during the war would be interesting to explore especially after his tragic death in a plane crash on 20 November 1941 when he had been flying to attend the funeral of Udet whose ultimate failure in his role in the Luftwaffe saw him commit suicide wilberg appointed richtofen to command the test squadron that was being formed for spain to test the new german aircraft and their tactics Spurl didn't have a competent chief of staff and he was well acquainted with Richtofen, so Richtofen was soon moved to that higher position, which he held at the time of the attack on Guernica. Richtofen was an inspired choice. Apart from his unquestioned skill as a field commander, He had spent time as the unofficial representative of the non-existent German air force in Italy in 1929, before Hitler came to power. Although von Richthofen lacked any natural ability in learning languages, he achieved a high proficiency in Italian, gaining the official German rating as an interpreter. He used his knowledge of Italian to communicate with the nationalist people he dealt with in Spain. He eventually also became proficient in the Spanish language. He displayed the fairly uncharacteristic quality for Germans at this time of being able to work well with foreign allies of Germany and treating them with great respect. The only biography of Wolfram von Richthofen that I'm aware of is by James S. Coram, a truly excellent book, was published in 2008, well after Antony Bivor's history of the war in Spain. Perhaps that accounts for the very dim view that Bivor takes of von Richthofen. Bivor describes von Richthofen this way in his history. (laughs) Richthofen, a cousin of the famous Red Baron air ace, was a hard, arrogant man, disliked by German and Spanish officers alike. He was to become infamous as the destroyer of many towns and cities, Durango and Guernica in Spain, then Rotterdam, Belgrade, Cania and Heraklion in Crete, followed by many cities in the Soviet Union, most notably of all, Stalingrad, where 40,000 civilians were killed. Antony Bivor offers one possible military reason for why Guernica was attacked, which he immediately completely dismisses. He says, One intention of the raid may have been to block the roads as he wrote, but everything else points to a major experiment in the effects of aerial terrorism. It takes no effort at all to paint the Nazis as comic book villains, frequently they were to an extent that defies belief. But the facts about the bombing of Guernica, the Luftwaffe, and Richtofen as military commander don't fit this picture. James S. Corum's biography of Richtofen gives what I think is this fairer picture of the man. It's beyond argument that von Richtofen had the ability to make decisions that would result in many deaths. On his own side, and the others. James S. Corum quotes from Karl von Klauswitz's military classic on the qualities that make a successful senior commander a military genius. The first quality required is courage, both physical and moral. The other is a thorough knowledge of your profession. Wolfram von Richthofen possessed both qualities in abundance. Von Richthofen's courage was repeatedly shown from the time he was a 2nd Lieutenant Cavalry Platoon Commander in World War I up to and including his service as a Colonel General commanding an air fleet. Like the great panzer commanders such as Guderian and Rommel, Richthofen repeatedly exposed himself to enemy fire as he led his forces from the front. Certainly another quality of a great general, which must be accompanied by the ones I've just mentioned, which again Richtofen had, was one that's often commented on by his subordinates. Von Richtofen remained incredibly calm, under fire. As commander of the 8th Air Corps, he carried out his own aerial reconnaissance on the front lines. He was hit by both enemy and friendly German anti-aircraft fire on a number of occasions. Incredibly, he was never wounded in battle during the war. When directing operations from his headquarters, he remained immune from panic as unfavourable information flowed in. He understood that in all the fog and friction of war, initial reports and fragmentary pictures of battle operations tended to be exaggerated and he was usually right in assessing what weight was to be given to the information and the reports that he was receiving from the front. He had a reputation throughout the Luftwaffe as a cool character under pressure. The only time that he's known to have lost his cool was when he heard of the disastrous decision by Hitler and Goering to support Stalingrad by air. He had immediately protested that decision. He explained to anyone who would listen to him, Hans Yasonek, the Chief of Staff of the Luftwaffe, General Zeitzler, the Chief of the Army General Staff, and even Hermann Goering, that the 4th Air Fleet could not possibly supply the German Army in Stalingrad by air, and that the only option was to immediately abandon Stalingrad and break out. Hitler would not take von Richthofen's calls. And characteristically for von Richthofen, from the time of the Stalingrad airlift decision, his staff described him as palpably upset and somewhat in a state of shock. For once, he couldn't keep his outward expression of calm in a crisis. But that was a long way into the future, and he was right in his assessment. Von Richthofen's knowledge of his profession was unsurpassed. He'd been a combat pilot flying with Baron von Richthofen's Flying Circus. He was a decorated fighter ace himself, having been awarded the Iron Cross First Class for his bravery. He was awarded a PhD in engineering in the 1920s from a university in Berlin, a vital qualification for the highly technical field of air warfare. Von Richthofen also had a thorough grasp of ground operations. He'd been a lieutenant in the cavalry, serving both on the Western Front and on the Eastern Front, which, in combination with his understanding of air operations, put him years ahead of almost all of the senior air commanders of the Great Powers in managing joint operations. Clausewitz also referred to other qualities of a great military captain that aren't easy to define, but which the great commanders must have. One is judgment, the ability to size up a situation accurately in all the fog and confusion of war. Another is the ability to make decisions with that knowledge. Once he grasps the situation... The commander then has to make rapid decisions that may put his force at great risk. He might have to accept heavy casualties. But The commander also has to calculate that by making the correct decision and having the will to follow them through, he has the chance to achieve decisive results in the battle and campaign. That will, in the long run, results in fewer casualties. These are truly rare qualities defined in a commander. Those qualities separate the great commanders from the good commanders. By Clausewitz's standard, von Richthofen was a great commander. Clausewitz believed that a great commander possessed a special degree of judgment that allows him to quickly evaluate the situation, focus on the decisive point, be it a geographical point, or part of the enemy force, and then mass his own forces against that point. Such judgment, and the ability to make decisions, is more a function of character than of training, James S. Coram says. It also requires a highly intelligent mind that can understand and accept a high degree of risk for a high payoff. One aspect of the commander's genius that Clausewitz discussed was the strength of will needed by a great commander. Will to power is a Nietzschean ideal, very much worshipped by Hitler's Third Reich, which von Richtofen possessed. As a leader, he had an enormous strength of will that drove his men and himself to the limits of endurance. When necessary, he'd push on to the objective despite heavy casualties. Corum agrees in part with Bivor's assessment of von Richthofen when he recognises that he had a reputation throughout the Wehrmacht as a somewhat cold and ruthless commander. It was a well-founded assessment, Corum writes, but in a commander that delivered results, those personal views of his peers and his subordinates didn't matter. Von Richthofen's uncanny ability to act decisively under pressure was apparent during the Spanish-Republican offensive at Brunette, which threatened disaster for the Nationalists. Von Richthofen pulled the German and Spanish air units out of the battle in the north against the Basques and quickly redeployed them to strike powerful blows against the Republican army's best formations. Thanks to the quick intervention of the Condor Legion, that crisis soon passed, and Brunette was turned into a nationalist victory. Julius Caesar had displayed the same qualities himself of being able to make instant decisions and change his orders and plan on the spot. Corum compares von Richthofen to American air commander Curtis LeMay in his military talents. He says that both men were brilliant tactical innovators, Both men were single-minded and ruthless as senior commanders. LeMay firebombed Tokyo, killing the world-record 100,000 Japanese in one night, and von Richthofen bombed Warsaw with a far smaller death toll. And neither man ever expressed much sympathy with the civilians on the ground or gave any thought to the broad moral issues of warfare. Both men were hard on their staffs and men under their command, and the two had few close friends within the military. Neither man was considered likeable, but their staffs respected them and trusted in their judgment. They embodied a new technocratic approach to war. In short, both were characteristic of 20th century air war. I think the following remarks from James Coram put the remarks of Antony Bivor, Richthofen was a hard, arrogant man, disliked by German and Spanish officers alike. Into context, Corum concluded his observations about von Richthofen by saying, all the German generals who wrote about von Richthofen's leadership during World War II described him as an exceptionally tough, ruthless commander. He was a consummate general in the Prussian tradition." He was very much at home on the battlefield and in the command post. Von Richthofen's staff in the Condor Legion had a nickname for their boss and his ruthless approach to warfare. It was the Tartar. If von Richthofen was not much liked by his men and staff, he was certainly respected. No one who served with him would ever describe him as being other than coldly rational. Soldiers and officers may not always like their superiors, but they respect and readily follow a man who knows his business and is decisive. Many of his fellow Luftwaffe officers described von Richthofen as vain and ambitious. He was even called a prima donna by some because he used his favor with Hitler to obtain additional aircraft and support for his command. Such characteristics tend to come with the rank. On the other hand, one can detect a tone of envy in the remark. What good commander would not be ready to use any influence he had so that his commands received additional reinforcements and a higher supply priority? So let's now get back to the terror bombing of Guernica on 26 April 19. 19- 37. Thanks for joining me, Paul, in the Danger Zone. If you have any questions about anything in this program, maybe you could catch up with me for my guided tour at the Australian Armour and Artillery Museum on Saturday morning starting at 10.30am. Probably the world's best guided tour of an armour and artillery museum, borrowing the Danish Kaldsberg slogan for their beer. If you missed this program, you can catch up with it as a podcast on Spotify, Apple, and many other sites. Search for The Danger Zone, bracket, DZ, close bracket. And if you like this program, you'll definitely love my other program, CYKIAE, also available on the same podcast sites.